we're again in Hebrews 8. Uh, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be sharing more announcements with you guys through social media, through our newsletter, just kind of about our plan. Um, as of right now, we are, we're, as of, not even just right now, but just moving forward, we're at the mercy of the Broward School District. And so as of right now, we are not planning on meeting at the school. Um, we're waiting for them to give us a date or the green light. And then we're also creating a plan for when we do come back together. You know, we do want to create some healthy barriers and boundaries. And so we're going to be even sending out in the next couple of weeks um, more of a survey, kind of just getting to know you guys and your comfortability level when it comes to meeting again in person. So just be looking for that. Sign up for a newsletter on our website if you haven't yet. Follow us on social media. We want to stay connected. So be looking for some of that information. Hey, we're in Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Um, in case you're wondering, wait, we finished chapter 6 last week. Why are we skipping 7? We're not skipping 7. If you remember, we actually taught on chapter 5, verse 1 through 11, and chapter 7. So go back a few weeks. We talked about chapter 5 and chapter 7, Melchizedek. Maybe it's starting to refresh your memory a bit. Um, those sections of scripture were all like one complete thought on who is this Melchizedek? How is Jesus greater than Melchizedek? What does that mean? What does that look like? So if you want to know chapter 7, we studied 40, about 40 verses that week, and uh, we spent a lot of time on that. So now we're in chapter 8. And so if you haven't got the gist of Hebrews, we've been saying this a lot. Every single chapter, he's trying to show how Jesus is better. Whether that's Jesus is the better high priest, Jesus is better than the law, he's better than the old covenant, Jesus is better than the priesthood, Abraham, Moses, Jesus is better. And so the focus has been fix your eyes on Jesus. When you're tempted to go back to the physical, when you're tempted to go back to the law, when, when you want to leave what we have walking by faith to go back to the temple and things that are visible and easily seen, he goes, remember, keep your eyes on Jesus. All of those things spoke of Jesus. So let me just kind of give you a chapter breakdown. Uh, I shared this a few weeks ago, but just so you can kind of see this and visualize it. Chapter five and seven primarily dealt with the better priesthood. Today in chapter eight, we're gonna look at the better covenant. Chapter nine is the better sanctuary, which is referenced today. And then chapter 10, a better sacrifice. And so today specifically, we're gonna look at the better covenant. Now this is huge. I honestly, um, I don't think I can emphasize how important Hebrews 8 is, not just to Jews, but to us, to Gentiles, to those who are not Jewish, but to those who follow in line with this idea of there will be a new covenant that the old covenant promised. This is so important. The old covenant, or what we might call the Old Testament, said in Jeremiah 31 that there would be a new covenant one day. Now, why is this so important? Because if the Bible didn't say there will be a new covenant and we just invented a new covenant, we are a cult, all right? That's, that's the idea of Christianity. Actually, in, in Jews' minds, when you talk to them, Christianity kind of hijacked their faith and is a cult of Judaism. That's how the church was kind of viewed at first. And little do maybe they know or little did we realize at first or did the world realize at first that um, we, the church, have a new covenant because of what the old covenant prophesied. Jeremiah 31, 31 promises a new covenant. And here the author is saying, this is the new covenant. Jesus offered and ushered in the new covenant. So I can't stress enough how important this is. It's not like Christians hijacked Judaism and invented their own faith. This is not a new religion to Judaism. In fact, this is a fulfillment of the law and of the prophets, as Jesus said. And so we have a new covenant because the old covenant promised there would be a new covenant. And the author of Hebrews is picking up on that. And actually, we're going to see this, but he quotes from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And this is actually the longest quoted portion of Scripture in the New Testament from the Old Testament. So in the New Testament, if you want to see without like break, without a break or pausing it, the longest quoted Scripture of the Old Testament in the New Testament is here in Hebrews chapter 8. And so we're just going to read this. It's Hebrews 8, uh, verse 1 through 13. We're going to read this completely and then look at this better covenant that you and I have today. So let's read Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. It says, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. I love that. This is the main point. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Verse three, for every high priest 
is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve, listen, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when uh, he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. This is God speaking to Moses, and he's quoting from Exodus. Verse 6, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, Jesus, inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant. Right now, if you would, at home, just say, better covenant. A better covenant. This is what it says, which was established on better promises. Say, better promises. Thank you for worship team. If you guys can't hear, that's great. Um, better covenant, better promises. Verse seven. For if, for if that covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Hear that. Verse eight. Because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue my covenant, and I dis disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." None of them shall teach his neighbor and none of his brothers saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more in that he says a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. We have a new and better covenant in Christ. And this was something God promised before Christ came to earth. And I would love for us just to slow down, pray over today to just say, God, speak to me. What does this mean? How does this not just be like vain, empty words that God writes his law on our hearts? How do we actually take that to heart? How do we actually carry this out? And what does it look like to be part of the new covenant? And so we're just gonna pray and just ask the Lord to speak and move. And I'm excited because um, this is the promise not just to the house of Israel and Judah, but to those who are of the seed of Abraham, which are those who live and walk by faith, just like Abraham lived and walked by faith. So this promise of the new covenant is for you and for me. And we are living under this new covenant right now. And there's a lot of promises attached to this that I don't want us to miss. It's a beautiful text in Jeremiah 31 that Hebrews 8 quotes. So let's just pray over this. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time we get to study your word. We ask that you would just be present in everyone's home. God, that you'd remove distractions that, um, Lord, even just those families that have kids, that there'd be a sense of peace right now in their homes, that they'd be able to focus and hear your word, take it in. Jesus, we just ask that we would just be individuals and a community of people who are dedicated to you, dedicated to the gospel, that we live and walk under this new covenant. So, Lord, we thank you. We just want to praise you and ask that you just be here now in your wonderful name. Amen. Um, I don't know if you've ever stayed up late and watched those cheesy infomercials that come on late and someone's trying to sell you something. Do you guys remember Billy Mays? I miss Billy Mays. He was that guy who would, you know, was really hyper. He'd sell OxyClean and he'd be like, bam, I don't know. He was just really in your face. I think he passed away and now there's like a new Australian guy that's not as good. Um, but I miss, I miss those Billy Mays days. But in those infomercials, a lot of times you'll see this phrase new and improved and I'll just be like, and, and maybe you remember our old product and it's new and improved. And I don't know about you, but I'm a little suspicious whenever I hear someone say new and improved. I'm like, is it really new? Like, is this new? Is it really improved? You know, maybe you've been a part of just like those new iPhone launch dates and you're like, I cannot wait for it. And you ask someone, so what's like, what's the new, what's new about it? They're like, the camera's way better. That's always what they say. You're like, okay, what else? Like, man, the software, it's, it's upgraded software. You're like, what does that mean? Like, yeah, it's just better software. Like, we don't even know what it means. And, and I feel like a lot of times we buy into this new and improved. I found myself the other day thinking something, I don't remember what it's about, but I was like literally thinking to myself, they don't make them like they used to. And I'm like, oh no, that's when you know you're getting old. When you say to yourself, they don't make them like they used to. And uh, anyways, this new and improved idea sometimes can come off as like cheesy, showcasey, you know, they're just trying to sell you a product. 
Um, let me say this. In Hebrews chapter 8, this truly is new and improved. And this truly is something that the Bible even says, this is a better covenant, better promises that it's built upon. And I cannot emphasize this enough how important this is. Listen, this is called a new covenant. The old covenant, the Old Testament, said there will be a new covenant one day. God made a covenant, he'll make a new one. And here when it's repeated in the book of Hebrews chapter eight, and now it's spoken of in Greek, here's actually the word new. Because when we say it's new and improved, like what does that mean it's new and improved? Here's the word new. Uh, Chapter eight, it says the word new. Here's the Greek words for this. There's two words. There's neos and there's kainos, which I'm probably saying both of them wrong and that's all right. Um, Neos, it's in reference to time, meaning this is new. Like this is new in reference to the time. And then kainos is, it's not just new in reference to time, but also in quality. So here's the idea. The author is saying this new covenant is new in time, but also in quality. It's truly new and improved. It's truly built on a better promises. And so we want to look at this because this is, again, I can't stress the importance of this. When you look at the Bible and you say 66 books written by about 40 authors over a span of 1,500 years, when you look at the Bible and you try to break it down, we break it down into two testaments. And maybe you see this, if you're new to the Bible, you'll see Old Testament, New Testament, or a better word might be Old Covenant, New Covenant. You know, you have Genesis through Malachi, which was just the covenant of the law, the covenant that was given to Abraham, given to Moses, really, the law. And you have it fulfilled with the law and the prophets. And listen, this is why this is so important. In the prophets, Jeremiah specifically, and even Isaiah references this, that there would be a new covenant one day that this covenant God made with man and how we interacted with man would actually become new. And so if we didn't have that promise, it really does look like we're just hijacking Judaism and making it become whatever it is we want it to be. But when in reality, Hebrews 8 quotes Jeremiah saying, no, this is a new covenant, but the old covenant promised that there would be a day, there would be a new covenant. So we're not hijacking this, we're not hijacking Judaism or this faith. We're actually saying it was fulfilled and now we're entering in and we have entered in to this new covenant. So this is so important. I cannot stress this enough. So here's how we're going to break down the text today. We're going to kind of rush through the first five verses because we've already kind of talked about this a lot. He's like reiterating his same points and then he offers a new thought. But here's how we're breaking down the text. Number one, we're going to see a better priest. Number two, we're going to see a better temple. And number three, we're going to see a better covenant. So we're going to walk through the first two points a little bit quicker and spend more time on number three. All right, let's let's do that. Um, A better priest, a better high priest. Listen to this. Again, what he says is is funny to me um, because he's a teacher and I get this. He says, chapter eight, verse one, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected or the Lord built and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. A better priest, a better high priest. Here's the main point he's saying, Jesus is better. He's like, Jesus is better. His priesthood is better. The temple, everything about Jesus is better. And if you haven't gotten that in this whole book of Hebrews, let me just say this. Our heart is prone to forget this truth, that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than any relationship you could ever be a part of. Jesus is better than any high you could ever experience. He's better than any party you could ever experience. Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer. He's better than any human experience we try so often to experience. And he's better than any form of religion. He's be- Jesus is better. The author in chapter eight, verse one, I love this. He's like, this is the main point. Like, you got to hear me now. And he talks about Jesus's priesthood, how he's seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He's like, this is my main point. And then after he says that, there's like five more chapters, which is, which is why I can appreciate what the author is doing. He's like, here's my main point, but I'm not done yet. And he keeps talking for a while. So just bear with me. Um, but this is his main point. He goes, Jesus is the high priest who seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now I want to like look at that. Let's just talk through this because he says, here's my main point, and he talks about something we've already talked about, but let's get this. When you hear this phrase, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, when you hear that phrase, there's a couple thoughts that come to your mind. One is that Jesus is co-ruler, co-reigner with God the Father, that he's seated at the right hand of the majesty 
in the heavens, at the right hand of God the Father. So there is this idea of Jesus' kingly ministry. And remember, Melchizedek, chapter 7 of Hebrews, was talked about a lot, how he was both priest and king. And the same idea that Jesus is this priest who is seated at the right hand, this, this kingly figure, and that he's ruling and reigning. And so here's the idea. We talked about this. Remember, if you remember a few weeks ago, no high priest could ever be king. No king could ever be high priest, except for this one guy in the Old Testament, Melchizedek, who is both priest and king. And now Jesus comes on the scene, and he's the only other priest and king that we see. That Jesus, he's not from the tribe of Levi, he's from the tribe of Judah, which is the kingly tribe, and he's not from the tribe of Levi, which is the priestly tribe, but he's part of the order of Melchizedek, so he's both priest and king. And the author's saying, this is the main point we're trying to make, that don't you know that Jesus is the king of kings? Don't you know that he's the high priest to end all priesthood? Don't you see that Jesus is the greatest king, that Jesus is the greatest high priest? He goes, I want you to see this in this moment right now. And here's why, for you and for me, this is so important. Um, Jesus did not come to start a new religion, but more, he came to end religion. And this might be confusing for some people or frustrating even. Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So first of all, Jesus fulfills the law. Jesus fulfills the scriptures. Everything that you and I could not do, everything you and I could not keep, Jesus fulfilled it. And then he fulfilled the prophecies about the Messiah. And in the sense, that ended what we know as religion, as us trying to bridge the gap between us and God. See, Jesus came to end that and usher in something completely new, this new covenant where we have deep intimacy and relationship with God. This is what's completely different about following Jesus than the rest of religions. Now, let me just kind of point this out really quick. So stay with me, stay with me. Um, Religions try to basically answer the same problem, and they share, you could say, two common truths. Here's the idea. Religion teaches that there is an ultimate reality. There is an ultimate reality, like something beyond us, and there's some gap between us and the ultimate reality. So stay with me on this. If you look at really particularly any major world religion, they're saying there is an ultimate reality that is beyond what you and I see, taste, feel, touch. It's beyond the empirical evidences that we might see around us. There's some sort of ultimate reality, and there's this gap now. Number two is there's this gap between us and this reality. And so religion tries to say, what is this ultimate reality, and how do we bridge that gap? So, man, we all want to find true meaning and value. So people will pray, they fast, they give, they do all these different things in different religions, right? They do all these things to say, what is that? There's meditation and there's so many things offered to bridge the gap between ultimate reality and this gap between us and ultimate. Like, how do we get there? What, what is it and how do we get there? And here's what the scriptures say. Jesus is ultimate reality. Colossians actually says Jesus is reality, The idea is Jesus is that ultimate um, person or one that we were made for and by. We were made by him and for him. There's this idea of like, what are we here for? What is this all about? Why do we exist? Why are we alive? Why are we breathing? Why is there meaning? And there's this ultimate reality everyone is seeking for. And the, the scriptures say Jesus is that ultimate reality. That's how Hebrews begins. It says Jesus is the radiance of the, of the glory of God. It talks about being the express image of God's person. Jesus is reality. And that's the, the thing that you and I are looking for is found in Jesus. And then there's this gap between us and ultimate reality. And religion says you need to bridge that gap. And the scriptures say God bridged that gap. So the difference between us and religion is religion is saying you do these things in order to bridge the gap between where you are and ultimate reality. And yet the Bible is saying God bridged the gap between us and him. That God said, let me come to you. It's not about how, much, how many prayers you can offer, how much money you can give, how much you can serve and do. It's not about those things that bridge that gap. I'm going to bridge the gap. I'm going to come into creation. I'm going to come to you. And you see, Jesus came, you could say in essence, to end religion because he fulfilled the law he fulfilled scriptures, and he offers us a completely new thing, not continue to bridge the gap, but I bridge the gap for you. Now it's based off intimacy and relationship. And he goes, don't you see that? Listen, he's this king who's this priest who is seated. The idea of Jesus being seated is saying that gap that was there between us and God or us and ultimate reality that people all f- experience all over the world. That gap, listen, um, Jesus bridged that gap. Jesus is seated down. He's, he's, he's seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. There's no more work that we need to do 
or that God needs to do for us to bridge the gap, it's done. It's finished. Again, you might know this. We've mentioned this. But in the tabernacle, in the temple, when the priest would do his duty, whether he would offer sacrifices or trim the wick or put new showbread on the table, whatever the, the priest or the priests were doing, um, there was never a seat in the temple or tabernacle. You'll never read an instruction to Moses and then make sure there's some couches or some seats. The idea was the work's never done. The work's never done. The priest always had things to do, but Jesus, our great high priest, is seated. Why is he seated? Because the work's done. There's nothing else that you and I need to do or God needs to do. The salvation has been paid for completely by Jesus and he's not here to usher in a new religion but to usher in this new relationship, this way that you and I relate to God and that is God coming to us, that is God pursuing us. And so the author's saying, here's my main point. Don't you see? Jesus is better. He's better than the priesthood. He's better than the temple. And so we're gonna look at number two. Um, there is a better temple, a better temple than what they had and I want you to hear this. The author's saying, you have a temple? Well, we have a temple. Look at verse four, Hebrews chapter eight, verse four. It says, for if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For God said to him, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. All right, here's what's really interesting about this. Um, the Jews had the temple in which they offered their sacrifices. They try to relate to God. But remember, this was written before the destruction of the temple. The temple in, in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. This is written before. And he's saying, don't forget what it says in Exodus, that this is just a copy or shadow or just a pattern. You're gonna make a pattern of what is truly in heaven. This might sound bizarre to us, I remember the first time I heard this, like, wait, there's a temple in heaven? The way God describes it, it's a, a temple in heaven where God's glory dwells. You know, the temple, the whole point of the temple was God's glory, his presence would dwell in this tabernacle at first, this tent made with human hands. Later, they turn it into a building, um, and that was where God was supposed to dwell, but God cannot dwell in a building made with hands. God says, I dwell, I dwell in this heavenly tabernacle. What Moses actually made was a pattern of what was in heaven. Now that's interesting to me because remember the Jews, and here's the author's point, you boast in your temple. Well, guess what? We too have a temple, but it's in heaven. We too have a priest, but he's not ministering on earth. He's ministering in heaven. It's done. It's completed. It's finished. He's seated. The temple you have is just a shadow of the reality. Remember, a shadow, if you saw my shadow and like try to like high five my shadow, hug my shadow, that doesn't make sense. You don't do that. The substance is what you try to like embrace. The substance. The substance is in heaven. The shadow was the temple or tabernacle that they had. And so the author's saying, you have a temple you boast in. And again, they love their temple. Man, Herod's temple was beautiful. Solomon's temple was beautiful. I mean, actually in Solomon's temple, you're, they were told to have like one menorah, one candlestick. They ended up building 20 menorahs in there, six feet tall of solid gold. I mean, it was a beautiful, they wanted to like showcase, show off their temple. They took it even further than what God said. Like, let me just show you how glorious this is. And they really tried to show off with their temple. And that was just a shadow. That, that's nothing compared to the temple in heaven. It's actually, again, it's Exodus chapter uh, 24 or 25 verse 40. Here's what God said to Moses. He says, see to it that you make them, this temple, and the, the, the temple, according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. This is what the author of Hebrews is quoting. He's saying, Moses just has a pattern. He just has the shadow of what's truly substance, what's truly there in heaven. Now, um, John in the book of Revelation actually writes something about this as well, about the temple in heaven. And People who study Revelation will kind of show you different things might speak of different things in the temple. So let me just read the verse. It's Revelation chapter 11. It says, Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. There's a temple in heaven where truly God's glory dwells and rests. And he's saying, you're boasting in your temple. We too have a temple. See, G what Jesus offers is so much better now we do it by faith. We walk by faith. You can see yours. We can't see ours, but ours is more physical. Ours is more tangible, even though ours is unseen. Now, here's why I bring all this up. When Christianity first started in the Roman Empire, you got to understand, Romans embraced like every god. 
Romans weren't like necessarily anti-Christians at first. Um, Romans were like, oh, you have a new God? Awesome, add him to one of our thousands of gods, right? Like there's a side of it where they wanted to know, there's a curiosity, tell us more about the God you worship. And the more that Romans got to know Christianity, church history tells us that Christians were actually called atheists. Like Romans called Christians atheists because to them, they're like, you don't really worship a God. There's no religion to you. Where's your temple? Where's your priest? Like, what the heck do you worship? Like, you can't see anything that you worship. This guy named Dick Lucas uh, put this, like, conversational dialogue between a Roman asking a Christian, like, what, tell me more about your religion. I thought this was funny. I'm gonna put the dialogue up there. Like, what the dialogue would have looked like 2,000 years ago between a Roman and a Christian. The Roman says, oh, you have a new religion? That's very interesting. Where is your temple? The Christian says, no temple. Jesus is our temple. Uh, Okay, where do your priests operate then, for crying out loud? We don't need priests. Jesus is our priests. No priests. Well, where do you offer sacrifices? Where do you do your offering? Where do you do the things so God will accept you? Christian's response, Jesus is our sacrifice and we're already accepted. What kind of religion is this? The Roman asks, and he says, it's not a religion. I mean, again, keep this in mind. This really would be so weird. You're like, hey, we have a new, and this is how people would at least perceive it, a new religion's on the scene. It's called Christianity. Okay, where's the temple? Where's the sacrifices? Where do you do those things so God is pleased with you? And it's like, no, no, God's already pleased with us because of the person of Jesus. We now walk by faith, not by sight. Our religion is not what you're used to. It is, in a sense, that's why they were called atheists. It was like so anti-religion to them. They didn't get it. I mean, this is so fascinating to me that Christians were the ones who were called atheists. Not necessarily because we don't believe in God because we didn't really have a religion. It's like, what is this? It's like, well, we believe in Jesus, follow Jesus, trust in Jesus, walk by faith, not by sight. We take the teachings of Jesus and implement them. We're, We're Christians, we're followers of Jesus. Listen, the author of Hebrews is saying, you want to talk about your priesthood? We have a better priesthood. You want to talk about your temple? We have a better one. Even though it's not seen the way you want it to be seen, it's better. And now he says, and here, not only that, but we have a better covenant built on better promises. So we're gonna go to number three, a better covenant. And this is really the main focus of today. This is what you and I experience today, which is a better covenant in Christ. So um, number three, a better covenant. Let's just read verse six, what it says. Verse six says, but now Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry in as much as he's also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. Verse seven, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. So hear this, there was a covenant, but it wasn't completely faultless. So there is a second covenant, which the Bible told us there'd be. Now, here's the question, what is a covenant? I've asked like Christians this, I'm like, hey, what do you, how do you describe a covenant? A lot of times it's like, oh, it's a contract. And that's probably the best word we try to use, but no, that falls so short. Um, it's interesting. Here's why a covenant is so interesting. A covenant is both legal and intimate. And please hear this. Um, today in 2020, when you enter into a legal contract with someone um, in business, in life, a lot of times it's more legal and less intimate. We kind of separate the two. We kind of say, oh, we're going we're gonna to go into this big venture together and enter into a contract. Um, this is going to be a legal thing that's binding, and we're going to hold each other accountable legally. But usually when that happens, there's not a lot of intimacy there. The only example of this, probably the best example of this, is obviously marriage, which the Bible uses a lot. But the idea was, this is a legally binding thing, but it's also for deep intimacy. And this is interesting, because if you want to have more intimacy, it needs to be like more legal. If you want it to be more legal, it needs to have more intimacy. The Bible's really unique the way it describes a covenant. Because again, think about this. Um, He's basically saying you need to give up your autonomy, your freedom, your independence to experience deeper intimacy. In marriage, think about this. When the two shall become one flesh, the husband leaves his father and mother, the, the wife leaves the father and mother, the two shall become one flesh. When you think about that, you're basically saying, I'm giving up my independence, my autonomy. I can do what I want, wherever I want. And now we're one. We think like one. We check in on each other. We're asking, what would you do? What would you prefer? You're trying to put the other person's you know, views above yours. The idea is that is a legal binding relationship, but it's also deeply intimate. And again, in 2020, we try to separate those two. Even for us today, this is, this is what's so different about a covenant. 
we kind of say, as long as you keep your end of the deal, I'll keep my end of the deal. This even happens in marriage. As long as you keep your end of the deal and you're faithful, then I'll be faithful. Can you imagine, can, I, can you imagine if I said that to my wife? Hey, if you keep up your end of the bargain, then I'll be a good husband. Like that would not go over very well. The, po- the point is, um, if you want deeper intimacy, you're actually gonna press into more of that covenant, that, that not even contract, just that deeper legal side of it. Like I'm in this regardless. I'm in this for better or for worse. If you don't keep your end of the bargain, it doesn't matter because I'm in this. You see, that's what a, a covenant is, is something like, it's like that. It's yes, it's legal, but it's deeply, deeply intimate. And you can't have one without the other in a covenant. You can't have it be legal without intimacy. You can't have it be intimate without being legal. There's a side of this where you're like, I'm in this for better or for worse. See, God is saying, I want, I've been in this covenant with you, but it's not really, it hasn't really gone well. It's been more of a contract to you. It's been more legal to you. It's been more law to you when I want this to be more intimacy to, with you. And so there's this new covenant that's based off of intimacy. That yes, it's still legal, yes, it's still binding, but it's based off intimacy. And even the way God describes it, it is so beautiful, which we want to walk through in just a second. But here's what I want you to see, verse 7. Verse 7 is so key. He says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. So here's, here's the thing. He goes, If the law was faultless, we would never need a second one. Now, let me say this. The problem isn't so much with the law, because sometimes the law gets a bad rap. No, God actually created the law. The law is not a bad thing. If you want to know God's heart for people and how to live life, read the law. That's actually like, God's like, yeah, don't lie, don't murder, don't steal. Like, that's like God's heart for people. Actually, not, don't do these things because I'm just trying to steal your joy. Don't do these things because I'm trying to bring you fullness of joy. I think Christians can have a revamp in how we view the law. Absolutely. But here's the thing. The law is fault. Like, it has fault. It, is, it falls short. Here's why. Um, me. You. I can't, it can tell me what to do, but it doesn't give me the power to do it. The law can point out things in my life that are off but it doesn't give me the power to fix those things. Are you following me? So think about this. You ever had that friend that just points out those things in your life? Like, well, you could have done that better. You could have done that. And they just point out things. It's like, thank you. I get it. I know I'm flawed. I failed. That's the law. It just kind of points out those things. But here's what the new covenant does. It reveals those things to you. Absolutely. But it gives you the power to fulfill them. It doesn't just say, here's where you fell short, fell short, fell short. It's saying, hey, you fall short, but we, God and the Holy Spirit gives us power to meet that. It's not just this law to point out the wrongs. It's the spirit of God to give us the power to transform and change that. And there's a difference. And here, I love this because the law can prove me guilty of sin. The law can, in a sense, condemn me. The law can bring this sense of conviction, yes. But when you look at the spirit, when you look at the new covenant, how God writes it on my heart, you go, but now I'm able to defeat that, meet that. I'm able to transform that moment. The law falls short, but the, the spirit of this new covenant, we have the power, we're able to actually fulfill those things that are pointed out against us. So I just want to walk through this with you guys. Um, this is Jeremiah 31, 31 through verse 34 quoted. So he's quoting Jeremiah, and there's a lot that Jeremiah teaches us about the new covenant that I think we need to be reminded of today. So if you want to know, how am I in this new covenant? How do I know? Like, what does it look like for a believer to be a part of this new covenant? There are five characteristics I want to point out to you that says, hey, you know you're in this new covenant kind of when, and here's what it will look like. All right, so we're just going to break this down. Really, we're going to break down verse like primarily 10 through 12 of Jeremiah 31. So let's do this. Uh, Number one, what does this look like? What will, what will this be like? Um, listen, I'm going to say it th- this way. Spirit rather than stone. Spirit rather than stone. Verse 10, it says this. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their heart. Spirit rather than stone. God at one point in time wrote on tablets of stone, but no longer he writes on tablets of flesh. God is saying this new covenant is not just going to be on stone. It's going to be written on your heart. Like you will know my way. You will know my word. You will know. You will know. Um, there's a side of this where as Christians, you guys, I think we should press into this more than ever. L- let me kind of say it this way. In the book of Acts, when the, when the church first started, 
and they believed in Jesus and his death and his resurrection. They were passed down the stories of Jesus. Some gospels were starting to be written within 15 years of Jesus' death and resurrection. And, and now, maybe 15 years later, they're getting these, these, gospel, uh, these gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And years are going by, and they're getting more letters from Paul or Peter or John. Understand this, for a good part of the early church, they didn't have what you and I have of the New Testament. They didn't have that. You know what they had? They had the Holy Spirit. They had community. They had the teachings of Jesus more being audible for that, for that time. My point is this. I'm so thankful for the New Testament. I'm so thankful for the Bible. I'm so thankful that we have God's complete revelation. A part of me wishes that we wouldn't read this Bible, the New Testament, as a textbook, as just ways to get information, but that we would truly read it with the way it's intended, that it would lead to transformation, that we'd read it with this mindset that we're going to hear it and do it. If God says it, if, whether it's in the Gospels, whether it's written by Paul or Peter, an apostle, it's not like up to the, for debate. It's not like, let me just go back and forth, and this is like, we're going to implement this. We're going to do this. For so long, they truly had to walk by faith, not even having the complete New Testament, and they had to experience, I think, deeper within of Jeremiah 31, what we don't experience, which is, God's like, I write my law and my will on your heart. I've given you my Holy Spirit. My point is, I think there was a, a time where Christians had to wake up in the mornings and just go, Father, what is it you want me to do today? Who is it can I love? H- who, how can I be in the moment to share the gospel with someone? Sometimes we just wake up and we want to read the Bible for the sake of like, give me information. Okay, got it, done, check, I'm done with information. And we go on with our day and there's no heart to how do I live this out? How do I carry this out? And I think this is where the problem can come in. I think that we have New Testament Pharisees. I think just like they missed, the pro- they missed the point with the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was God's like, this is my lot, and it's to lead to greater joy. And then they're fixating on the Sabbath, and what is the Sabbath? And Jesus is like, man, uh, Sabbath was not, uh, man was not made for Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man. Like, you, you're missing the point. And I think in the New Testament, we do that. I think in the, the church, we can do that, which is like, we're just trying to read maybe for information, and we're missing the point. That God's spirit is trying to speak and move and prepare our hearts to live daily after Jesus. Church, we cannot just move on from this. Um, spirit, <clears throat> rather than stone, that God writes it on our heart, not just on stone. Let me give you another verse. This is in Ezekiel 36. And this is how it said. It says, God says this, listen. I will give you a new heart. And listen, and put a new spirit within you. I will take out the heart of stone out of your flesh and give, and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. I will put my spirit within you. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. There's a side of this, you guys, where I've talked to people and they go, well, how do I know what God wants me to do? And it's a great question. Sometimes I'm like, "You, you know, like you know what the Lord's leading you in, but maybe you're ignoring the Holy Spirit. You know God's heart for you and yet you're ignoring him. You know that God is speaking to you, Christian, in some sort of way where it's saying, reconcile this relationship, where it's saying, forgive this person for what they've done. And, you're, and you go, well, let me just read what the Bible says. And you're just trying to find verses that affirm your position rather than saying, I'm going to be open to the Holy Spirit's leading. I'm going to give stillness and quietness so God can speak and God can move. Listen, God writes his law, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of flesh, on our hearts. God said, I'll put my, new, I'll put my spirit within you. Christians, there's a side of this. I cannot emphasize this enough. You're like, what does it mean to be a part of the new covenant? Um, God has written his law in your heart. That we can always debate all day or find a pastor, find someone to affirm our beliefs, affirm what we're doing, affirm our actions, affirm our attitudes, affirm our bad decision-making. Or you can just be quiet and listen to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, what does he want me to do? Where am I off? Where am I being selfish? Where am I being prideful? Where am I serving me and not you? Where, where am I off, Lord? And I invite you to speak into that. And there's a side of that's the new covenant. The new covenant is God's spirit. He'll write it on your heart. That yes, we need to explore the New Testament. Yes, we need to read it. We're so thankful. This brings clarity to all of that. But there's a side of this where we need to press into the person of the Holy Spirit. Church, please. Again, the early church in the book of Acts, they don't ha- didn't have this. They had to wake up and go, okay, Holy Spirit, what does you want from me today? And I'd say, what a great way to start off our day. What a great way for us to say, God, what is it you want for me today? How is it you want me to give my money? How is it you want me to serve? How is it you want me to use my time today? Who can I tell about you? And just saying, God, I'm open. Not just reading the Bible and being like, that was good. That was cute. I read the Bible. But like press into the person of the Holy Spirit and say, well, what is it you have for me today? And I want to be led by you. I think that's how you know you're in the new covenant. He wrote it on your heart. He put a new spirit within you. Number two is this. You're going to see intimacy rather than formalism. 
intimacy rather than formalism. This new covenant speaks of intimacy rather than formalism. Listen to these two phrases in the section. God says, I will be their God. Later he says, for all shall know me. I will be their God, all shall know me. Um, Let me put it this way. God is knowable. That is mind-blowing to me. God makes himself knowable. I will be their God, all shall know me. Um, God is infinite, yes. And I, I love the illustration of imagine a vast ocean as far as you can see. And here's my brain. It's like a little cup. And I just scoop up the ocean, the cup. And I'm like, I know God. And it's like, okay, well, my brain, what I can take is like this much. And there's this vast ocean. Like God is infinite. I believe eternity is eternity because it'll take all of eternity to get to know God. I believe that this is eternal life that they may know you. John 17, three. It's going to take all of eternity to get to know an eternal God. Absolutely. But at the same time, God says to us, I'm knowable all shall know me. Like, do we get that? You want to know what is a Christian? What is a new covenant? Um, you know God. Now this is, for some people you hear this, and this sounds like completely arrogant and prideful, or for some this sounds really terrifying. When I say like you can know God, when I say Christians know God, there's a side of this, you go, that's really arrogant to claim you know God. I can't believe you claim that. Well, God says I can know him. That's a humble thing. That's, a, that's an amazing thing. For those of you who are terrified, you say, well, I don't know if I want to know God because what that will do to me. And when you get to know God, you just want to know more of him. The more I get to know God, the more I love him. Do you ever get to know someone, and then the more you get to know them, like the less you like them? Um, that's not God. <laughs> the more you get to know him, the more you love him. The more you spend time with him, the more you go, I just want more of him. Listen, he says, I will be their God. Do you not hear the intimacy there? I will be their God. They shall be my people, or all will know me. There's such deep intimacy there that we cannot miss. This is not formalism. This is not this code of conduct that I do these things, therefore I know God. But we can have a deep relationship with him and therefore I do these things. And that intimacy changes everything. It it, it cannot be such a formality. I want to just encourage those of you who, again, who view this book as just a doctrinal thing, who just view this as like, just give me information of God and I love deep and rich theology, but you don't love intimacy, you're missing the point. God's like, I want there to be intimacy I want there to be intimacy there that will lead to a lifestyle, that will lead to changes, absolutely. You're reading for the sake of transformation, absolutely. But again, notice that the intimate, I will be their God. All shall know me. God is knowable. And you know how we get to know God? Through his word, through his revelation, through what he reveals to us. Get to know God. Spend some, some time in this book. God has revealed himself to us. This is not like some mystery they have to go explore. God's revealed himself. Choose to place your nose in this book and spend some time with him and say, God, I want to know you. It can't just be information, but just go, go, Lord, I want to get to know you intimately. And so that's why we press into this. That's why we study through the Bible. That's why we used to pass out Bibles when we could meet in person. We're like, get to know God of the universe. Spend some time with him. Press into him. Get to know him. God has revealed himself to us through his word. This is a living book. This is not just some dead words. This is the living word of God we press into it. So there you see there's intimacy rather than formalism. Number three, we're going to see this in this phrase, in this covenant. Um, Community rather than individualism. Community rather than individualism. Here's the phrase, I will be their God and they will be my people. So important. They will be my people, like a people group, not individuals. They'll be my individual, like we're people. So Here's the thing. We see in this new covenant a community, not individualism. And I know that we're Americaners and I know that we're like from the West and, and we're all about like do your own thing. And, and like, we're not like, we're not really for the community. You're not for the family. That might be more of an Eastern mindset. The Western mindset is like, you make a name for yourself. You do, you go do great things. And here's the thing. When God's like, you're going to be my, my people, man, we're, there's this call to community rather than individualism. There's this call to think about the kingdom of God and the people of God rather than yourself. Advance God's kingdom, not your own kingdom. Think about God in the big picture, not in the small, my world, me, me, me. And listen, God said, you will be my people. I love that, just like my people. You know, if I said, if someone said to you, oh, this is my John or this is my Sarah, and they like, you know, said, refer to you that way, there's like that ownership talk. You know, not really a lot of people can say that. My wife can be like, this is my husband. I can say, this is my wife. And there's a side of that, like, this is, my, this is mine. This is my blood. This is my family. This is my community. This is, this, is our, this is our thing, guys. We are God's people. We are God's people. God has called you to be part of community rather than an individualistic lifestyle. If right now, during this whole pandemic, you still have been isolated, every week I've made the same annoying announcement. Join a Zoom group. Join a digital group, and you're probably sick of it. Um, 
you're missing the point of, of, of what it means to follow Jesus in community. We're told not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We're told to press into community. So I would encourage you now more than ever to think in this way that you are part of God's people. It's not just he saved me, he saved us. We're saved to a family. We're called to this family unit. And that is a beautiful thing when you can press into that. So community rather than individualism. Here's next what we see in this covenant. Equality rather than classism. Equality rather than classism. Here's why. It says this, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. I love this. All will know me, the least to the greatest. Here's why this is important. The temple, the temple back in their day, they had the court of the Israelites, the court of men, the court of women, the court of Gentiles. They had all these barriers, all these different classes. You know, a Gentile could only come this far to the temple. A, a woman who was Jewish could come this far. A man who was Jewish could come this far. And there's all these classes set up, set up and these barriers set up. And this is what we do. This is what governments do. This is what human history has done. We have classes of people. You're rich, you're poor, you're important, you're not important. Here's what the gospel does. All are sinners. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And by the grace of Jesus Christ, we can all have Christ's righteousness. No one is greater or weaker or lesser than anyone else. Because either you're in Christ or you're not in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. If you're in Christ, man, you have a new family. You all have Christ's righteousness. I am not holier or better than you. You are not holier or better than me. You know why? Because I have Christ's righteousness. And if you believe in Jesus, you have Christ's righteousness. And there's no greater or lesser. And here's what we see. All will know him from the least to the greatest. How men have tried to divide us, have men and tried to say there's least and there's greater. Listen, there's equality at the foot of the cross. That is the point. When it comes to the new covenant, when it comes to following Jesus, there is equality. All of us are equally lost and all of us are as equally as found in Christ. And there's no longer this classism that men or women try to create. There's no longer this he versus she or this guy versus this person. There's no longer this classism. There is this we're one in Christ. And there's this beautiful equality we see in the new covenant. And number five is this. Um, we're gonna see freedom rather than condemnation. Freedom rather than condemnation. Here's the verse, verse 12. <clears throat> it says, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. We have freedom rather than condemnation. Again, listen, the law can say, here's where you are falling short. The law can say, you're lying, you're stealing, you're sleeping around, you're doing all these sinful things. The law can point out sin and it can bring condemnation. But see, here's what Jesus can do. Obviously, the Spirit brings conviction. Obviously, the Spirit can point out those faults in our life. But the Spirit of God comes and lives and dwells in us to give us power to overcome those things. The law can only reveal while the Spirit brings life. You know, Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says this, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is knowledge of sin. The law is just the knowledge of sin. It just No one's justified when it comes to the law. But under the Spirit, under what Christ has done, we're justified in Christ. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, absolutely. But God is the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. And so there's this side where we go, wow, I'm not just condemned because it points out my sin. Actually, in Christ, I'm, uh, there's no condemnation toward those who are in Christ, to those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Not only is there no condemnation, now there's freedom. Now God has delivered me and set me free from those things. Church, here, here is the point of this today. The author of Hebrews is saying, the covenant we have, he literally says is better, built on better promises. And he's quoting from Jeremiah 31, 31, saying, one day there will be a new and better covenant. And that was obviously fulfilled and found in the person of Jesus. Christianity is not here to hijack Judaism and say, let us create our own thing. We're here to say, hey, remember that promise of the new covenant? Yeah, Jesus offered that. Yeah, Jesus comes on the scene and says, this is the new covenant that I give you. In a moment, we're gonna take communion and I just want to read the verse where Jesus says, here is that new covenant. And so listen to this. Would you get your communion ready if you're at home? Let me just read this verse to you so we can understand this new covenant we're in. It's 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. It says, The Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup of supper after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread 
and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Church, stay with me on this. Jesus, the night before he's taken to be crucified, he's celebrating Passover with his disciples. Can I explain something about Passover? At Passover, they would have bread. They'd have unleavened bread to remind themselves of how the people had to take the bread and and hurry, leave Egypt and get to freedom, cross the Red Sea, get to the promises God had for them. Here's what I want you and I to see. The people would eat the bread on Passover and hear this. On Passover, they'd grab the bread and say, this is the bread of my affliction. This is the bread of our affliction. Because they would remember the fact that they were afflicted under Egyptians. They're afflicted as slaves. And they say, this is the bread of the affliction, and they'd eat it. Jesus, during Passover, got up and redefined the bread. Jesus saying, this is the bread of my affliction. I'm the one who's going to be pierced. I'm the one who's going to be broken. I'm the one who's going to take on the affliction of the world so you don't have to. It's no longer the bread of our affliction, the bread of the nations of Israel's affliction. This is the bread of Jesus' affliction. He's saying, remember Passover, how people celebrate and remember the fact that they were afflicted? Well, let me just redefine this. Um, I'm the bread that is truly afflicted, that's truly broken. And take, eat, and then take, drink. And so here's the idea for us today. We are going to take communion in just a moment. But I just want to encourage you and remind you of the fact that we are in a new covenant because of what Jesus has done for us and because of what the Bible prophesied. I mean, I am so thankful for, for Hebrews 8. I am so thankful for Jeremiah 31, 31. If there was not this promise of the new covenant, we're just making this up. But there's this promise that one day there'd be a new covenant, that God would not write his law on stone, but on our hearts. That God would place a new spirit within us. That God said, all will know me from the least to the greatest. They will be my people. And this is the new covenant where Jesus says, you can know me. You can know me. I came to earth so you could know me. God became flesh and dwelt among us so we could know. What is God like? Look at Jesus. What, is God, what would God do? Look at Jesus. And Jesus is the one who bridged the gap for you and for me. So we, now we have this new covenant, this new relationship that is both legal and intimate. It, it is binding and it's just deep, deep intimacy that we have with Jesus. It is re- this relationship. He did not come to bring a new religion, but he came to bring a new relationship between us and God. And I'm so thankful for that. And so this is why the church gathers together. We're told to gather, to eat, to drink, and to celebrate this new covenant and to celebrate Jesus' death until he comes. And so that's what we're gonna do. I know you're home right now. I know that this is different for us. I know that we did this like on on Good Friday and it was just different. It's different not being together in person. Um, But know what's so beautiful about this is I think anytime you eat a meal and you just go, wow, let's remember the, the fact that Jesus broke his body, shed his blood for my forgiveness, for the fact that he ushered in a new covenant covenants were always ushered in by blood and Jesus ushered in his covenant by blood. And so we're here to remember and celebrate that. So I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna pray really quick. Then I just wanna read the verse and we're gonna take and eat. I'm gonna pray, we're gonna drink and uh, I'm gonna close this out. So let's do that. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for this opportunity we get to worship you, to study your word. God, let it not be words on a page or words on stone, but words on our heart. God, I ask for myself and everyone, there'd be this real sense of we know you. We don't dismiss you. We don't quench the spirit. We don't grieve the spirit. Forgive me, God, for when I quench your spirit, for when I grieve your spirit. God, thank you that you will remember those no more, that there's freedom, that it's not that you necessarily forget, but you you choose to no longer hold those things to us. That Jesus, um, as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our sin. We thank you. We thank you for the new covenant. We thank you for what it is you offer us, that it is in Christ, that we are a new creation, that God, we can now have a new relationship in which we identify with you. So God, I just ask for everyone at home that you'd speak to them, encourage them, remove those distractions. Jesus, be so present that we just confess sins, that this would be a time where we can just hear from you and enjoy you in your name.